Okay, so today we're going to talk about uh, true prosperity in God. And I'm going to just start off with the my key scripture, and then from there we'll kind of break it down. So let's go to 1 Timothy 6 and 6. And this says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, this is a scripture that I know we've all heard time and time again, but I wanted to dissect this one just a little further to see what it really meant. I wanted to find out what does it mean to have godliness? And what is the biblical connotation of contentment? It's easy to get the great gain part because that's like kind of almost a no-brainer. But the godliness and the contentment, what was he meaning in us obtaining that in order to find the great gain? For I truly need all the gain that God can give me. So I'm going to try to find what is needed for me to get some great gain. Because I figured that's better than just a little gain. It's great. So I figured we should further examine this scripture. It was interesting, though, the scripture's right above this one. Since everything must be taken in context and you must look over the whole, you know, few verses before you can get really what he was talking about and why he threw that in there. And the word but, you know, always says not this, but this. So um, let's go to the verses right above it, which is three through five. And in these verses, we'll see that he is telling us to withdraw from these things and focus on godliness, which is good, great gain. So verse 3, it says, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, many of us, we've read this and kind of skipped over the part that says false doctrine, so we kind of think that we don't fall into that category because, you know, we think we have the truth. But the only doctrine is not the plan of salvation. The book is built on many doctrines. So you must have all the doctrines correct in order for you not to have false doctrine. So we read false doctrines, and we think we're omitted from the rest of the scripture because we figure we have the truth. But let's look deeper into what is really saying with all of these different things outlined as far as the things we need to get ourselves away from. So Paul is warning Timothy to withdraw from those who are corrupted, who have corrupted the doctrine of Christ and made it the subject of strife, debate, and controversy. Those who do not preach practicality, who do not teach and exhort that which is for the promoting of serious godliness, if he will not consent to wholesome words, words that have a direct tendency to heal the soul, if he will not consent to these, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he told Timothy to withdraw from these people. We are not required to consent to any words as wholesome words except the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
To those, we must give our genuine agreement and consent and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. Now, unfortunately, we have gotten so smitten with the rhetoric and slogans that the Bible has lost a huge amount of its power. The doctrine of our Lord Jesus is a doctrine according to godliness. We have perverted and falsified what it means to be godly. In short, godliness has a direct tendency to make people godlike. Is your life looking like God? The entire character of God, not just the lack of sinful behaviors. Then it goes on to say that he that does not consent to the words of Christ is proud and contentious, ignorant, and does a great deal of mischief to the church, knowing nothing. And we love to create controversies in the church. We have created just things to debate about, just for the heck of it. Because everybody got the idea of this and that. So we just create strife and envy. And this is all supposed to be based on Christ. When we step away from practicality of godliness, we are proud, contentious, and ignorant. We have created mischief, and it says we actually know nothing. We know nothing. And this is what we've done because we do, we rather not take the word of God at face value. We rather pervert it and create it to be something that makes it easy to go down. And all we've done is create a contention and fight. And we're out there supposedly talking about Jesus, but we're sitting there fighting with everybody else. In what way are you winning some soul? In what way are you getting people to see the beauty of Christ when all you're doing is condemning? Nothing like Christ did when he was here. Never acted like that. Yet we have gotten just ignorant. And those are his words, not mine. Commonly, those who are most proud are those who know the least. Because when you know knowledge and you have a great deal of knowledge, your first thought is that I really know nothing. Only proud people are the ignorant people because they really know nothing and they're scared for you to know that. For with all their knowledge, they don't even know themselves. They've just quoted a bunch of stuff. They memorized a bunch of stuff. But if you don't know yourself, if you don't know your flaws and you're able to confess and admit where you fail in which you don't know, then really what do you know? They do not know how far away they really are from true godliness. And this is the fear that I think we should all have, is that we don't want to get to the place where we have memorized and we can recite and we know the cliches and we know the rhetoric, but we have no godliness. Because that's a scary place to be. Who really cares how much you have memorized if you cannot live any of it? If it has not become a practical walk, a daily walk, what then is the point? For we're wasting our time coming to church every week three or four times a week and you've gained nothing. What really is the purpose of this walk? Why did he save us? What were we supposed to get from it? If our life looks about the same, then something has gone awry. We've missed the process 
of what God really wanted to do in our lives. Those who fall off from the plain practical doctrines of Christianity fall in with controversies which eat out the life and the power of religion. They dote about questions and strives of words which do a great deal of mischief in the church. These words are the occasion of envy, strife, railing and envy surmisings or jealousies and suspicions of others. And that's we just become suspicious of everybody. No one's right, no one knows anything. Well, you don't believe the way I believe. Well, I see this this way. Well, you can do this, no, you can't do that. How you know that, da, da, da. And then we've become just people just against each other. In one building, fighting each other for what? For Jesus? Because are we really trying to get to know him better or are we trying to act like we smart? And we figured the whole thing out. When we are not content with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness, but we will frame notions of our own and impose them on others, and we will use our own wisdom, and not in the words which the Holy Ghost teaches, we sow the seeds of all mischief in the church. Be careful when all you know is man's wisdom when you know man's interpretation of what the scripture says. We have become too lazy in our walk that we just rely on someone else teaching us. That we get so comfy, just say, you give it to me, I digest it, it must be the truth. And this goes across the board, especially for evangelicals, for the born again people. They are so stenched in their pastors that all they say is my pastor said. You will hear more my pastor said than God said. And that's a scary place for us supposedly having the truth and having the spirit within us that we can quote the pastor better than we can quote the book. I was telling somebody, I was like, you know, we chide um, the Catholics because, you know, when they're honest in their approach where it's the saints, then it's tradition, and then it's the Bible as far as the hierarchy of order. We are about the same. We just lie about ours. Because it's really the pastor, our tradition, and the Bible just comes in third. Because everything is not based on the book. Our whole idea about God and Christianity and the way we should live is not based solely on the Bible. It's not the authority in our life. We have put everything else in front of his word. And then if you put it in front of his word, you've put it in front of him because he is his word. It can't be separated. So shame on us. And we need to repent for putting anyone above Christ. Then comes the perverse disputing of men of corrupt minds. You're in the church and God sees your mind as corrupt. Disputes that are all with subtlety, yet no sturdiness. We just throwing around flimsy ideas. And if I asked you to back it up, you couldn't. If I asked you to define your point based on the word of God, you couldn't. The only thing we can halfway define is the oneness Baptism in Jesus' name and being filled with the Holy Ghost. If we come up with any of the other doctrines in the book, we will fall on our face. 
and we will have other people from supposedly the wrong religion be able to show us up because they've realized that it's bigger than just the plan of salvation. Yet we've gotten so stumped in it that we have not grown at all. So we get to fighting about foolishness and nothing that is going to further our walk with God. Nothing that guarantees me a spot in the kingdom. So what am I fighting about? Shouldn't our whole emphasis, everything that we're doing being about, I got to make it to the kingdom. Whatever I got to let go of, teach me what I need to let go of. Teach me what I need to start doing so that I can make it into the kingdom. If he says that godliness is great gain, why aren't we focusing on what does it mean to be godly? And what does it mean to have contentment in the godliness? Going back to yesterday, why don't we know that the fruit of the Spirit is the thing that's going to keep me from all adversity? That's what's going to keep me from sinning. So we've broken down fornication. We've broken down lasciviousness. We've broken down debauchery. We can say those things over and over again, but we sit down and I ask you, what does it mean to have kindness? And what does it mean to have goodness? We just say, well, it's the word. It's goodness, kindness. We say all the quotes of the sins, we get to, but be controlled by the fruit of the spirit. We just read by that like that's nothing. Oh, you just have love, kindness, peace. Okay, but be glad that such was some were you. And then we shout about that. But what we still in the problem because we don't have the fruit of the spirit. There's a problem in this. And though we can plead ignorance before Christ, and we can get to the throne and say, but Jesus, nobody told me. That's what I stayed and listened to. And he's going to be like, but I had it right there on your lap. You're at fault. You can't blame anyone else. You can't say no one else taught me. It's not about somebody teaching you. It's about you letting the spirit guide you and the spirit teaches you. Because it said it came to teach us all things. So why don't we know the all things? Why is what we know so small compared to the whole 66 books? Why haven't we got enough unction to say, what would that happen to me? We study everything else. We're not dumb people. We're not ignorant. We know how to pick up a couple of books and cross-reference. Yet for some reason, our walk with God is not that important. If we're just honest with the amount of tension, the amount of work that we put into supposedly the biggest thing in our lives, the thing that gives us life or death, we have made that so small that I will study for my job stuff and I will study for school and, and I will get into my marriage and I will get into my kids, but I will forget about my walk with God, and I will think that it's enough for me just to come and sit on a pew every week and say, God, you should be pleased. At least I drove down here. I dressed up, and I came. Waved my hand, did a couple of skips maybe, but a little shudder. And you should be happy, Jesus, because I have no more to give you. Yet we fall on our face and we beg him to do everything. So the book says, men of corrupt minds are destitute or needy of the truth. Your mind is corrupt because you don't have the truth. 
the reason why men's minds are corrupt is because they do not stick to the truth as it is in Jesus. Supposing that gain is godliness, making religion submissive to our secular interests. Remember, this is not just about money, but whatever you feel is valuable. It may be people thinking highly of you, thinking you're smart and intellectual, people putting you on a pedestal because you're so saved now, because you have changed your life so greatly. Are you just debate just to win? What are you using the gospel for, for yourself? What do you value that you suppose that religion can give you? Because then your mind is corrupt because you're using it for a gain that is not about you getting to godliness. So really, why are you in this? What's the real point of you supposedly being in tune with God? being saved by God. What is the whole point and purpose in your life for giving your life to Christ? Because if we don't know the purpose, if we don't know why we're doing it, then really we're doing it in vain. And we're getting no gain from it. It's not enough that we took the first walk. We did the first steps. We let go of a few things. It's got to be more and more and more that we're giving him. We've got to get to the point that we're disturbed that I'm not giving him my best. That I'm disturbed that there's so much more I know I need to do. That I'm then working tirelessly to get there. That I'm not going to just sit back and say, well, I know it's a lot to do. Well, at least we got grace and mercy. And thank God for that because we would all be, you know, in hell if we didn't have the grace and mercy. But we cannot just rely on grace and mercy and just take our time strolling through life, saying, well, whenever I get to it, I get to you. Oh, it's just too hard to give this up. It's just too much, I got too much other things to do to devote my time into this. We've gotta stop making excuses for ourselves. Because we excuse ourselves out of so many things. And we have excused ourselves out of the biggest thing in our life, which is Christ. From these things I just read, Timothy was warned to withdraw himself. To withdraw himself. And it's hard to withdraw yourself when you see these things happening. You just kind of phase it off, say, well, that's what people do. You got people sitting in the parking lot fighting and fussing over what? You got everybody got a purpose and an ideal and a thought. So then we just become just a bunch of quarrelers. Over what? It's not about Jesus. We've just used him as our way of fighting. But it's not really about him. It's not about me really trying to help anybody get closer to God. And foot, you know, really, I need to try to get myself as close as I can get before I'm trying to keep talking about how far everybody else is. So if I surmise this, number one, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ are wholesome words. They are robust to prevent or heal the church's wounds, as well as to heal a wounded conscience. This is the point of his words, to prevent and heal the wounds, to heal my wounded conscience. If the word is not doing that for you, something's gone wrong. For Christ has the tongue of the learned, to speak a word and season to him that is weary. 
This is what, he's not coming to demolish us. He's coming to try to bring us out of our misery. The words of Christ are the best to prevent ruptures in the church. For none who profess faith in him will dispute the aptness or the authority of his words. Who is their Lord and teacher? Do you really find the Lord to be your teacher? Because then it's hard for you not to be engrossed in what he's saying. And I, I mean, you know, I, I readily admit all of my stuff that, you know, it took me up till these past five years to really even start reading the Bible for myself. It was just something that was there. It was something that you did. You came to church, you sat down, woo, woo, woo. You did your thing. You tried not to get yourself in too much trouble. But that was really the basis of it. Now that I am um, truly investigating what does it mean to be with Christ? The Bible is an amazing book. The words, the way he phrases, the words that he uses, how he lines it up, the order that he gives, it is amazing how much he put into for us to get it. So when we see the book as just something that's kind of, uh, or read it when you, you need to fall asleep, and that's the joke, wow. That's a little scary because we're not really in tune with the amazement of his words. Do we really believe that he is the word? Do we really believe that as we digest the word, we are actually digesting Jesus? So that if I'm digesting him, that means I'm becoming more and more like him. Is our aim really to become like him or to stay as much ourselves as possible to get into the gate? That when our aim is and the joke is around the church, as long as I get in, as long, even if I'm an usher in the back row, just let me just be there. When that's enough for us, that's a slap in Christ's face. When I'm not willing to do everything I can to give him my best, to know that I will be the one full of crowns to throw back to him. That my aim is not to collect crowns, but my aim is just to make it in. That tells you about where you are with Christ. For I want to be the one up there just toting them. Like, I've gained a whole lot. I think everything that he's given me, I want to have used it all up before I make it to heaven. I want to be able to look at him and say, I used every single talent you gave me. There's nothing I left unturned. For how dare we sit and act as if we have nothing to give back to him. When all we want to do is receive, but we don't want to give. That means I'm then just using Jesus. And I don't think he liked to be used. Because if we don't like to be used, and we ain't really doing that much for folks. But if we, I want you to use me. Can you imagine that he doesn't want to be used when all he's done? The fact that all you see me is is, is a bank to withdraw from, but you never want to deposit? Ah. Something's got to be wrong with that. We've got to feel bad about ourselves that we do that. Where am I? However, the church has given the words of men a regard equal to God's words. We say, oh, what they said is just as equal to God's. I mean, even with, with us doing this, I want no one to take my words as, as pure magic. I want you to say, let's see if the chick is right. Let me go back and see where the heck she get that from. 
especially if it's something you never heard before. Don't distrust me. Go back and see, is this right? Because I'm not here to try to control nobody. I don't want anyone just digesting me and saying, oh, well, she said that it was that. And then you skipping and dancing off on that. No, find out for yourself. And you should do that with everything. Verify. The book said to test it. Test it to see if it's of me. Do we test? No. We just take it in, digest, and say it must be. Then we wonder why we're sick. Because you're eating poison. In some cases, we even make man's words greater than God's word. And we do that because we don't know the word. And we're trusting that nobody would get up there and tell us something that was false. We trust that. We trust man too much. We, we're trusting man with something that is life or death, that is heaven or hell. We do that with no other thing. If you're at work and somebody tells you something, you're going to go back and see if that's true. If you go to the doctor, as much schooling as they have and as much experience as they have, you want a second opinion. You getting on the internet, going to WebMD, you doing all that stuff to try to see, is this possibly true? And then you checking three or four sites. When you're in school, you cross-referencing, you're seeing all this stuff, but somehow we get to church and we just say, oh, they couldn't tell us nothing that's false. This has to be the truth. And this is, why, this is why I really believe that you have so many diversities of religion. It's simply because people won't investigate. If everybody's aim was to find Christ, I don't care what you label yourself, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, whatever you label yourself. If your aim, everyone's aim was just to find Jesus, everyone would find the truth. You can call yourself, I could care less. Doesn't really amuse me that, you know, you call yourself this or that. But do you know the truth? Because if everybody's aim in this Christian walk, which the Christianity is huge, was just about, let's see what Jesus said. Let me find Jesus. Let me disregard everything that you told me and let me go find him for myself, everyone would be saved. But what have we done? We've put in too much in traditions in the world and what man has said, that we have just scooted the poor Jesus on out when he died. Number two, whoever teaches otherwise and does not consent to these wholesome words, he is proud and knowing nothing, for pride and ignorance commonly go together. Now, do you want to be known as a proud, ignorant fool? Do you want Jesus to think of you as that? You're just proud and ignorant. Now, how foolish is that to stay that way? Number three, we learn the sad effects of silly and excessive questions. And strifes of words, of such questions come envy, strife, evil surmisings, and perverse disputings. And we'll start asking questions about the dumbest stuff just to get off the point. The fact that we can have long debates about if someone should wear pants or a skirt, that we can have long debates over the length of someone's hair, or someone's jewelry, or if you should come to church with a tie or shorts. The fact that we can have long debates and we can have sermons after sermons about silly questions that mean nothing. 
yet we won't investigate what it means to get to heaven. Envy, strife, and evil surmising. We create jealousies and suspicions of others because we want to dote around silly questions. Now, don't you think that's part of Satan? Don't you think that's part of his subtlety to come in and get us fighting about stuff that means nothing, that gives us no place in the kingdom or not? And we sit here and get ourselves all in a tussy, all fighting about what? That's the devil. And we are supposed to know his devices? Oh, I know him. We know the devil. I know how he works. And he didn't just came in and just fooled us all. So we're yelling and screaming, fighting and railing over pure silliness. When men leave the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will never agree. Will never agree because it's not about Jesus. You cannot disagree like it says with the fruit of the Spirit that we need it. And that if you encompass it, it says the law cannot condemn you. Now, there's none of us that could sit here and you could have 100 or 200 people and you say you read that scripture, no one can say that's false if you believe the Bible is the truth. But when you start throwing in stuff that's not in the scriptures, stuff that you came back up, then that's where you get your fighting. You got a corrupt mind because you want to create fights. Really, isn't the 66 enough? Do we, I mean, the fact that we don't know probably not even a fourth of it, isn't that enough for us to investigate that we really don't need to go into a whole lot of foolishness? What are we getting out of this? They won't agree about their own words or the invented words of others, but will perpetually wrangle and quarrel about them. How often have we changed our minds on stuff that means nothing? On this was supposed to be right. This was supposed to be wrong. Then you get older, you start dissecting stuff, looking at stuff, and you'd be like, man, I was wrong. Because it was never based on the Bible anyway. And then you start feeling stupid because you was beating up folks over stuff that you thought was wrong. And then now you're doing it, and then you feel like, dang, I shouldn't have said nothing. Because it's silliness. And this will produce the envy when they see the words of others preferred to those that they've adopted. So I see you on the sideline with them. You agree with them. Then you over here agreeing with them. Then I don't like you just simply because you have a different thought. Because you believe in something, something else that I don't believe in. So now we just fighting and we on different sides of the church supposedly all coming to praise Jesus. And then this will be attended with jealousies and suspicions of one another. And then they will proceed to perverse, to perverse disputings, which leads to corrupt minds that have been robbed from the truth. So we start with the silly questions. We get to all this debating and quarreling, envy and strife. Then our minds get corrupted. And then what? We've lost all truth. What's the point? Let's just stick with the scriptures. 
The last one, good ministers and Christians will withdraw themselves from such. Come out from among them, my people, and be ye separate, says the Lord. From such withdraw thyself. You've got to make yourself the one that says, I shall not be a part of that. I'm not fighting and arguing with y'all ever again about something that has no substantiation in the book. My ears are closed. Fight if you like and God be with you. I'm not even going to convince you of nothing else. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to say mine is right. I'm just going to say, may you find what you're looking for. No more. Because I can't let my mind get corrupted and get robbed from the truth because I'm sitting here fighting with you. Save yourself. Now, all of that is the reason, all that silliness is the reason why he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I had to tell you what you need to withdraw from. Now I'm going to tell you what you need to get to find your great gain. So let's define what godliness is. It supposes knowledge, worship, affection, dependence, submission, gratitude, and obedience. I'll say it again. It supposes knowledge of God, worship of God, affection towards God, dependence on God, submission to God, gratitude to God, and obedience to God. Godliness. This is what we're supposed to get. Now, that's a lot of working. And I'm fighting about toes in, toes out, length of hair. When I need to find the knowledge of God, I need to learn how to worship my God. Not jump and buck and run, but sit and worship him. Where is my affection towards God? Have I given him all of my heart, all of my mind, and all of my strength? Am I completely dependent on God? Or am I still working in my control? Do I still think that I can do the thing without him? Have I completely submitted my life to God's? Is he in control? Truly, how much gratitude do I have towards him for what he's done for me? And how much obedience am I giving to him as far as the knowledge that I know about him? That's godliness. Or it may even be reduced to these four ideas. Knowledge and mind, by which it is distinguished from the visions of the superstitious. See, we've made Jesus superstitious. We all, woo. And we wonder why folks are a little scared of us. Because we come up with some stuff. Talking about stuff that's just crazy. You walk in some of our churches, you would think folks has just done lost their mind. Just one day sit and just look and say, hmm. just think if you were a stranger that just happened to walk in. You would be like, wow, this is spooky. We shouldn't be spooky. Jesus wasn't spooky when he was here. People weren't scared of him. People wanted to be around him. He said things that were amazing. 
He did amazing actions. You know, even when he was doing his healing, he was, you know, on the low with that. Just touching, keep on going. Little spit, spit, going about his business. But us, we got to make it a big old production. You know, be darned if you can just walk down, have a little prayer, and go on back to your seat. You got to have a whole big thing going. Folks pouring oil all over you. You got to be up there. Everybody got to talk in front of you. What happened to the subtlety of Christ? He was not a drama king. Yet our productions of church is just drama. How much can we put into this hour or two to create a, a, a whole big, you know, just speculation? Everything has become just self-oriented. Let me be on parade. So our singers are on parade. The choir is on parade. Folks can't read scripture no more. They got to be on parade. Prayer got to be 20 minutes. Just pray and get on and sit down. Say a couple of good words to the people and to Jesus and go on. But we got to make everything a production. Altar call can't just be a simple thing. You want Jesus, come on down. You need some prayer, come on down. And then we go on home. But it's all about us. Number two, integrity in the conscious. That is distinguished from hypocrisy. We're very hypocritical. We talk one game and we are very different than what we really say we are. How much hypocrisy is in your life? How much do you profess to be Jesus' child and your life looks nothing like him? Sacrifice in life or abandonment of the world by which it is distinguished from deliberate disobedience and living life as you wish to create it. How much will you sacrifice of what you want of what your evil desires are to be in line with Christ? Or do you say, Jesus, you're just going to have to come aboard because I think this is good for me and I kind of want it and I want to let it go. How much sacrifice is in your life? How much do you give up, let go of, restrain from so that you can say, but I got to be in line with Christ? Passion in the heart which differs from the languishing emotions of the lukewarm. Are you truly passionate about God? Does he light your fire? Or is he just like, yeah, I know he's there. Every once in a while, I want to feel him. Or is that he is just like this burning desire? You know, we love to quote the Jeremiah, this fire in my bones. We ain't got no fire. We ain't not burning up for Jesus. If we honest. We are not on fire. Most folks don't even know we know Jesus. And I'm not talking about a chit-chat and profession, but I'm talking with the way we live, the outcome of our lives. We not on fire. Shut up in my bones. And we love to be saying stuff like that. Let's shut up. The advantages, the advantages, excuse me, of this disposition are honor peace, safety, usefulness, and support and death in the prospect of glory. Godliness denotes the substance of revealed religion. 
how much has God revealed to you about his plan? You personally. You sitting at home in your own quiet time about you and Jesus. How much has he revealed to you about himself? Like I said last night, he said he wants to give us the revelation from his heart. How much revelation has he given you? Because he wants to speak to each and every one of us. And he wants to tell each and every one of us something different. So why don't you know more about his heart? Why hasn't reveal, he revealed himself to you? Why are you waiting for someone else to tell you what God needs to say to you? If you perhaps would sit down and chit-chat with him, he wouldn't have to use other people to speak to you. You know, he's intimate like that. He kind of likes to have just one-on-ones going and keep your stuff private. But we force him to have to bring other folks up in our business. Because we'd rather listen to somebody else than listen to him. And then we've bought into the thing that God don't talk to people. Just a select few. Well, what father doesn't talk to his child? What husband doesn't speak with his wife? Come on. And remember, when he's speaking, it's not about other folks. He just want to talk to you about you. He wants to tell you what this means for you. Because what one gets out of a verse, another will get something different. And it's okay for it to be different. If y'all taught this, it would be different. Each and every one of you would have something different to say. That doesn't mean that it was wrong. It just means he gave you a different revelation. So now when you go back and you sit down and you say, what is godliness for me? He may reveal something different. Wouldn't that be nice to know what he wants you to know? God will only reveal to you when you want and desire a deeper relationship with him. He's not throwing away his stuff. He's not just going to cast his uh, pearls among the swine. Do we want to know him? Do we really, really, really want him? Because he's not going to just be chit-chatting if you don't want to hear. He does know how to be quiet. And we wonder why we haven't heard. It's because we don't want to know. Now, if we add godliness with the fruit of the Spirit, we then have a great insight into the lives we are supposed to live. So, of course, if I embody all of what godliness is and focus all my attention to godliness and being controlled by the Spirit, I would then have great gain. Nothing would be lost. All would be gained now and in the life to come. If my focus was on that, I would have nothing lost. Because how could I have anything lost if God is controlling me? If he's setting every direction in my life, he, there's no loser in him. The reason why we keep losing is because we're not walking with him. So what is contentment? Because you got to have godliness and the contentment. Contentment. A state of mind in which one's desires are confined to his lot, whatever it may be. 
It is opposed to envy, materialism, ambition, anxiety, and lowliness in spirit. I'll read that again. It is a state of mind in which one's desires are confined to his lot, whatever it may be. It is opposed to envy. I don't need to be caring about what nobody else has because I figure God got me. Materialism. I don't have to be so consumed about getting stuff. And the thing is, is that with materialism, you know, you can have people that have nothing be very materialistic. Everything is about getting. It's like, I can't wait for this. I got to have that. Oh, somebody else, I got to get that. Oh, it was a commercial. I got to have that. I have no self-control. And that's the problem with materialism because you lack self-control. So you get, 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 get. You just keep getting stuff. And then you're never satisfied because you have put too much in getting stuff that's going to end up fading away anyway. Ambition. And that doesn't mean that you don't care about excelling in life. But what kind of ambition do you have? Is it in line with God? If God says you need to stay at that position, but you're like, no, but I need to be a couple of things higher, can you be content until he's ready to move you? Or are you going to say, oh, Jesus, I can do this on my own and let me work my own plan? Anxiety. Why are you so anxious? Anxiety is nothing but fear. It's all it is. I'm scared of what's going to happen. That means I don't feel God got my back. Because I'm afraid. And loneliness in spirit. We just so sad and depressed. And most of us is not because we have a chemical problem. There's medication for that one. But the other problem is that we just are so unhappy with our lot in life. We're just unhappy. I want more. I don't like what I've been given. So I'm just sad and depressed. I feel rejected. I feel denied. Jesus is not on my side. Why would I have to be this, you know, this poor? Why can't I have a husband? Why can't I have a wife? Why are my kids acting a fool? All this stuff, and this is your lot. Why my daddy don't want me? He don't want you. I mean, this is your lot. And some things you've got to accept. And say, this is where I am. We get too busy fighting over what we've got. This is it. Because if this is as good as it gets, what are you going to do? This is it. What if you get no more? What if this is the best there is to offer? Are you going to be mad and, and depressed and, and sad for the rest of your life? Or are you going to say, this is my lot. Somehow God is in control. If he wants to bring me out of it, he'll bring me out of it. If he doesn't, this must be where I'm supposed to be. But if I have obtained the fruit of the Spirit, and I have the love, the joy, and the peace, which is my habit of mind, then my circumstances won't really matter. Because I will say, I know God loves me. I know he's given me this inner repose. And I know he's not going to let me down. And if I have godliness and I know the knowledge that I have about Christ, I know who he said he is. I know the promises that he has set before me. Then I have no reason to be afraid. 
If I know I'm giving him all my affection and, I, and I'm submitting my entirety to him, why would he not take care of me? This is why we always have to pull ourselves back in when we're full of anxiety. Because that means I'm not trusting in God, period. No matter how we want to turn it, flip it, and trust me, I've done it because most of you guys know my whole big thing was fear. But, but that's a lie. I was fooling myself trying to talk myself out of it and making it be okay with Christ. And he was like, no, you have fallen short. You're full of sin. And you will not make it into my kingdom with that kind of disposition. Now, was it a struggle to get rid of that? Years. Three or four years to get rid of that. I can say the day that it's gone. Completely. No fear. All trust. But like Andre said last night, it was a pain in letting that go. It was anguish in getting that out of me. My walk to the cross to nail that and hammer it up there and watch it die was painful because I had affection for it. It was my friend. It was my constant companion. You're telling me to let go of what I've always held on to? You're telling me to let go what has stayed with me since I was a child and has been my friend that has taken care of me when I feel no one else was? I have to let that go for you? And you ain't even really showed me what you gonna do? It was a struggle. But at the end, where I am, the peace of mind I have, the not tossing and turning at night, and all that pain that goes in the turmoil in your body, with being in the thing is, it's, it's the pain and turmoil because I'm out of line with Christ. These two spirits are fighting one another. He's saying, you got to be with me. I'm nothing but peace and safety. Your evil desire is saying, be afraid. So they're fighting each other, and I'm wondering why I'm in turmoil, is because he's like, you got to get rid of that mess. If you're going to be with me, you got to let it go. This is the work we've got to do. This is not play work. This is not, you know, easy work. It's easy to come to church every week, sit in a pew, do your thing, and go back home and be the exact same person. It's hard to look at your face in the mirror and say, I don't see Jesus. Because remember, we're supposed to become a reflection of him. I should be able to look in the mirror and say, ah, there's Jesus. Other people should be able to look at me and say, oh, you got the Jesus. And I shouldn't have to say anything to them to make them know that. What happened to the light just shining? What happened to us being just different people and people just saying, there's something about you? Why is it that we haven't gotten to the place where we have been in the presence of God and that has then just passed by people and people feel something? I mean, is Jesus explosive or not? Is he small or is he huge? The fact that you don't even, you know me for 10 years and you don't even know I know the man, that's a problem. And then the only reason why I assume you know him is because you keep telling me about how saved you are. 
and how much Jesus you have. But if you never told me, I never would suspect you were even close to the man. We've got to renegotiate uh, our relationship with Christ. And the negotiations got to be shut up on our part and let him do his stuff. So again, we're talking about contentment. It says it arises from the inward disposition and is the offspring of humility and of an intelligent consideration of integrity and kind gentleness of divine destiny. See, contentment is not just, oh, I'm just, okay, I'm going to be content. Okay, this is just what it is. You're intelligently discerning that there's a reason why I have to have peace in this situation. We're not supposed to be ignorant. Uh, intelligent consideration of integrity. If you have integrity, why do you have it? What is integrity for you? What is integrity based on what God said integrity is? How humble are you? You remember, humility is about you saying I'm nothing and God is everything. That God is in control and God is the one that has to orchestrate everything. We can see the fact that our lives are really not humble because we really don't give him much power. Most of our power is within our own hands. So I have no humbleness. I have no humility. Forget kind gentleness of divine destiny. Because we're just thinking the guy should just let us in. No, he should let me into heaven. Came down, got baptized, filled the Holy Ghost, and stopped my sins with the ones I want to admit. The famous ones. He should let me in. Open the door, Jesus. How dare you act like you're not going to let me in? So we can sit up there week in and week out and say, I know I'm going to heaven. Does he agree? Has he stamped you and said, yeah, you're going to make it? Or are you just hoping, wishing and praying that somehow he's going to say, oh, yeah, you did enough? Again, it goes to the greatness of the divine promises. Do you know the promises? There's so many promises in the book. How many can you name? How many have you dissected to see that this is a promise from God? And if he said it's a promise, that means nothing can revoke it. And our own unworthiness. We've gotten too cocky, like I said last night. We act as if God owes us something, not that we owe him something. We are unworthy of all that he has bestowed upon us. We don't really deserve it, you guys. And we think that he should be happy to have us, not we should be happy to have him. As well as from the view of gospel opens up to us the rest and the peace. But if you don't know the gospel, you don't know nothing about the rest and the peace. Have you went through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them to see what he's talking about? They were excited about this peace and rest that he was going to give them. I mean, the spirit was supposed to be a huge part of that, that you're never left alone again. 
You know what they didn't have when they were right in the beginning of it? We have. That we never were to be alone and we are sitting here acting like he's not done anything? So godliness with contentment is a great game. That's all the game you need. Now, can you get to the godliness? Can you work yourself with the help of Christ to get to the godliness? Will you do all that you can do to become godly? Remember, this is as much doctrine as Acts 2.38. We got to get past the door. Because we all, like I said last night, we just sitting in the vestibule. The book does say let's leave the principle of the doctrine and go into perfection. When do we get to perfection? When do we start getting ourselves really in line and in tune with God? When do we start letting go of all the silliness we talk about? Why are we still fighting about the same things in our lives? When do we let go of the evilness and move on to just the spirit being in control? I mean, at some point in time, we've got to get tired of this. Because it's like we're on a bad roller coaster. And it won't stop. And we just keep going down and down. Then we go up a little. Then we down and down. Then we flipping all around. When do we get off and say, I'm just going to take the straight path of Christ? I mean, a lot of the chaos in our lives is because we don't want to get on the straight path with Christ. You know, I think that's really why it's so narrow. Because it's really, you know, it's not that much we really have to do, though we make it a lot. We act like being godly is a hard thing. We act like getting the fruit of the Spirit is, is the struggle. My Lord, when we don't even do any of the work, he does all the work. All he's asked for us to do is submit. Say you want me more than you want yourself. That's all, that's all the work we do. Then he does everything else. Up to the point of us getting to glory, he then presents us spotless. Not that we necessarily are spotless, but he presents us to be spotless and blameless. Yet we do all this redoubling of our efforts, trying to get right with God when we're not even going to ever come close with our own efforts. So when do we humble ourselves and say, I am nothing. God, you are everything. God abides in his house, not in the entrance of his building. Maybe that's why you can't find him, because you won't go search for him. Remember, he said he put us in a spacious room. It's, it's spacious. I mean, he's all over this big room, and we sitting there underneath the post, thinking an earthquake's coming. You better stay here. We don't know what's going to happen if we get to the freedom part. <laughs> we like a bunch of stupid slaves. We've been freed. It's over. Go. And what do we do? We sit there with the master. I don't know what it's going to be like out there. You mean we can go wherever we want to go? No, just stay here with me some more. And that's what we say to Satan. I'm just going to stay here with you. You've been with me all this time. 
I don't mind your beatings. At least you got me comfort. The freedom? An open room to roam? Mmm. We scared of that. And that's why I said yesterday, that's why we need the external controls. I need you to keep me in line. Because Jesus, the freedom thing? Remember, Jesus was, he was free. He like went where he wanted to. He like did what he wanted to do. Sat with who he wanted to. Chit-chatted with who he wanted to. Healed who he wanted. He just did his thing. This is the life he wanted for us. Yet we want to all stay in the crowded room. Look the same, act the same, talk the same. And even those who want to rebel, they too scared. I'm just going to sit here, then I become like the, the first part of the scripture. Then I'm just making up disputes, causing strife and envy. Because I know that I'm bound, but I want to be free. Yet some of us will choose to live short of the promises of God because it is easier and more comfortable to be miserable. There's a comfort in our misery. We've been knowing it for, you know, a few years now. And the older you get, the longer you know it. The longer it becomes your good friend. Do you want to be free? I mean, do we really want what God said we can have? Because I think sometimes we read some of the promises and we say this has to be too good to be true. Peace beyond understanding, really? I mean, that's what you're going to really give me? So that all this mess is going on, but I'm going to have peace. I'm going to just have joy just because. You said I'm going to have joy. And I'm going to love other people just because you said I should love people. I'm going to learn how to be faithful because you're faithful. And be kind and gentle and have goodness. Just because you gave me a spirit and I think all it is is speaking in tongues? How am I going to get that? So we sit here and we try to intellectualize it. We try to figure it out. It's not for us to figure out. It's for us to just trust. And this is why our walk with God stinks. And why we see it as a burden. And why we're mad that we can't do the sins we want to do. Because we're angry. Why can't I? Don't really want to let that go. Which is why we hold on to them. And we keep doing them. He died to deliver us from the misery. And we say, no, Jesus. That wasn't a good idea. Because remember, though our words don't want to say it, our actions say it all. As all our mamas told us, actions speak louder than words. That works the same for Christ. The fact that we are tied and bound to our misery and we want to stay there, means we are telling God that the cross meant nothing to me. I'm not impressed with you dying. Or maybe we need to see it. Do we want to crucify him again? Because truly that's what our sins do. Crucify him afresh. Yet I don't care that I crucify him. 
Like, I'm not hurt that I'm crucifying Christ. I mean, we've all seen the passion. That was horrendous. It was actually very hard to stomach. But the next time you happen to look at it, or maybe we should rent it, now put your hands on the whip. Put your hand on the crown. Put your hand on the hammer and cut him open and watch him bleed and die. It makes sinning a, less, a lot less appealing. It's not as cute. The thing that I think I'm bound to, the thing that I become addicted to, that I can't let go of, the person who I think I am, it's not that cute anymore. When I can take in my hand and say, I'm okay with crucifying you. And that's what we've got to do with each and every sin that we carry. We've got to stop not making this a big thing and not making it personal. Truly, when I was able to see what I was doing to him was when I was able to fight to get rid of it. When I could see that my stuff was killing him. It stopped wanting, I stopped wanting it to be around me. But when I thought of it as this is just who I am, well, this is just my vice, or I just got to deal with it, it's easy for me then to just play with it. I mean, really, how dare we not go for the great game? How dare we say, Jesus, I want to be pouring you? I don't really want to be rich in Jesus. Let me just be poor. I'm used to poor. I know poor. Poor in the pocket, poor in spirit, poor in intellect, poor in knowledge. Just poor folks. When we comfy with poorness. So we get to Jesus and we're okay with being poor. You say I can have great gain and I say, can I make it in being poor? which becomes all our questions. Can I make it in doing this? Can I make it in doing that? How much can I get away with and still be able to cross the threshold to glory? What a kick in the face. Yet all of us desire to be rich, materially. No one wants to be poor. You know, if I offered any of you guys you know, a million dollars, not one of you would, would deny it. Yet God is offering us much more than that, and we deny him. Why? Because we walk by sight, not by faith. So maybe we should just admit that to ourselves, that we prefer the sight thing than the faith thing. Yet without faith, it's impossible to please God. Maybe that's why we have no pleasure. In John 3 and 2, he said, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in every way and that your body may be kept well, even as I know your soul keeps well and prospers. His prayer was not for his. He said, prosper. I want you well. I want your body well. I want you to get things. Have a good life. But I wanted to be contingent on the fact that your soul is doing that more. 
How much has your soul prospered? How much work and effort have you put into your soul prospering? Our soul is more important than our bodies and everything else. If we can get our souls to prosper, I know God will do the rest. We have prioritized poorly and expect for that not to matter. So we must think again, whatever we sow, we shall reap. So if we sow the fruit of the spirit and godliness with contentment, we will reap true prosperity in God. Maybe the reason why we are so bankrupt is because we have sowed nothing. So we're reaping nothing. We must completely rethink our relationship with God. We must not ever become content that what we're doing is enough. We must always say, I have not done enough. There is more I must do. Never, this is one relationship that you can never just sit back and say, well, I've arrived. Because remember, judgment comes at the very end of your life. When you take the dirt nap. Or the rapture takes place. That's when judgment hits. So you could do good for 10 years and foul it up at the end. Never get comfy. This is not the walk to get comfy in. This is the walk to always be on your tiptoes, to always be examining, to always see where you've gone wrong, to always see where you've fallen short. Remember, sin is simply missing the mark. How many marks have we missed? I mean, our arrows are not hitting the bullseye most of the time. So that means we're full of sin. And we all know sin shall not enter the kingdom. So really, how much of a guarantee do we have in heaven? If we honestly really check our lives and check where we are with God. How many of us can raise our hand and say, oh, I know I'm making it. It's another way to look at it. Don't get cocky. Because you may be left here. And you can be with your good friend Satan. Since we like him so much anyway. And I'm finished. I'm through.